welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, my name's Micah. Welcome. Glad you're here. So uh, I'm really glad to see you. Uh, nice to be here. I'll be preaching a sermon today, which is fun. Um, and if you are new, you might be wondering why I'm saying that. Over the last four weeks, uh, I have been afforded some time off and would like to just say thank you. I'll start with that. Thank you to a church that recognizes uh, seasons in, in, in ministry and what it means to be a leader and a pastor. And I think I can speak on behalf of Jenna and I to say uh, we're really grateful to be a part of a church that uh, loves its staff and pastors well. Uh, in the, the last month of not speaking, I've attempted to sort of pay attention to my what my heart and head and body have been telling me. Some of those things that I've heard have uh, served to, uh, as a balm to hold and heal some things. Other things I've heard have served as agitators and offered little clarity, which is kind of like life, right? Um, and so in the, in the midst of that, trying to sort of figure out uh, how to be a pastor and uh, in the midst of, uh, in the wake of our denominational meeting a little over two months ago. So, um, I will, I'll mention that some of you have asked, uh, you know, seemed like something significant happened in Omaha, and then it just was kind of like radio silence, haven't heard much about that since then, to which I would say you are correct. Uh, you've perceived correctly, and I guess I just want to say, uh, w- me and our staff and our advisory team at the church, uh, we, we really don't sense any rush. We really don't feel like we need to be jumping to any sort of conclusions or, or, or decisions, and so we're just slowly, deliberately kind of walking through and, and listening to what's next. Uh, if that pace seems really slow to you and you're, you're struggling in the midst of that waiting, I want to encourage you to reach out to the advisory team. If you're a partner or you call Awaken Home, uh, this group of six others, they serve on your behalf and they lead on your behalf in a lot of ways, and this being one of those important ones. So if you find yourself with questions or just kind of like wanting to talk that through, um, please feel free to, to email any of them. Their names and contact information is on the website. You're welcome to do that, and they would be glad to uh, connect with you on that. Um, so we don't have a, a plan as of yet. We're still in the process of discerning. And So what that means for us today is Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, uh, for a sermon uh, in the, in the series that we call Lost in Translation. So I hope you're up for that. Here we go. Stand if you can. Luke 16. The gospel writer says this, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. In Hades, or in hell in some of your translations, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony." Besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that, is set, that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
He's not taking any, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Father and no father, Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said, Abraham, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this day, the gift that it is, the breath in our lungs and the sun that rose in the morning. Thank you for your word, uh, both revealed to us in Jesus and written down uh, by these faithful, preserved over so many generations and years. I'm grateful for the way in which you continue to speak and reveal yourself to us through it. I pray that that would be no different today, that you would have a word, uh, uh, a moment, an encouragement, a provocation, a challenge to us. Wherever we are, whatever we've brought into this place, we recognize that it belongs somehow in your economy and that you work with whatever we bring. So here we are, and here you are. And all God's people said together, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Lost in Translation, a series that we often do, picking difficult passages and trying to make sense of them. This one is a little bizarre, if we're being honest, on a number of fronts. Uh, I'm going to try to offer some light and some thoughts on it today. But I'll start with this. When I walk into a room, one of the most common questions rattling around in my brain is, is uh, how, did it, how does it work? Or how did it get here? Or why does it work that way? Or who made it? Um, when I walked into this building for the first time, I was just struck by the woodwork in this place, and I was fascinated, like I was, found myself going to corners and looking at 1938, people, it was built in 1938, no power tools, no compound miter boxes at that point, but the, tight, the joints in this place are as tight as a drum, and it's astounding, it's fascinating, my eyes, my heart, like who I am is drawn to that, how did they do it, how did that work, how did they make this place? So I'm, off, I'm always asking that question. If I ever come to your house for dinner, I will be looking at your woodwork and looking at things in your house. Being, how did, how did they, who, who did that? Do you, do you know, who, how much did you pay them to do that? No, I'm kidding, but I'm not. <laughs> um, I find that that's true with Scripture as well. I, I come to the Bible and I go like, how does that work? Or who wrote that? Or what did they mean by that? And parables are the sort of pinnacle of that experience where I often think, how do these things work? And what... What did Jesus mean when he said it first, and is it, is, it, is it consistent with how Luke is using that material, because, you know, there are different parables, and some are left out, and some are added, and there are details, so clearly the gospel writers are adding to what Jesus originally said, and so I'm trying to, wonder, I'm wondering, like, get, to get below the surface a little bit, and uh, I, I've, but I've, so much so that I've, I've done a series on the parables, I think four times in my pastoral career of 20 years. That includes like working with junior hires. And I'm, I'm fascinated with them. And I don't know if you're anything like me. I'm often underwhelmed by the lazy interpretations of parables. Do you know what I'm saying? Can I get an amen on that one? You know, here's how it often goes like this. God is the king or the father or the shepherd. You, we are the workers, the sons, the sheep, the coin. And the parable is to tell us what God is like. Thank you, you can all leave now. I, and that's kind of like the default when we come to parables. And they're very simplistic, and it's like Aesop's fables. And I want to suggest that these are really, really sophisticated literary devices that Jesus and people like him would have used to subvert and challenge assumptions that were present in the time that they were told. This is not Sunday school, like, flannel graph stuff, people. What... If, 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 if the, the, the sort of de facto interpretation is true, Jesus wouldn't have gotten killed for it. You know, like no one gets killed for saying nice platitudes about God. You get killed because you challenge power. 
and you upend the structures that support them. You know what I'm saying? It's a revolution up in here. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he's telling parables. So I'm just fascinated by them, and I want to try today. I want to try to offer some thoughts on this parable. I want to debunk one of the de facto sort of, you know, traditional interpretations of this passage, and then offer what I think are some sharp and uh, honest critiques that Jesus offered then, but I think apply to us now. You know what I'm saying? So that's where we're going. If you're interested in that, stick around. If you're not, there are donuts in the back. Uh, I want to I try to give you some tools. Wow, that was, that was bigger than normal. I want to try to give you some tools that will help you read the Bible. As a pastor, that's one of the things that I, I see as part of my job. You're theologians. It's not just my work. It's not just Jenna's work. It's not just the work of the priests or the clergy, but like you all. So I want to help you read the Bible well. I want to try to uh, uh, listen to the voice of the Spirit for us today. If we assume and believe that the Bible is one of the ways God reveals and speaks, then it would follow that maybe today there is a word for us from this text, from like the divine. Part of my job as pastor is to help us listen and hear. And so what I want to do is try to listen to the voice of the Spirit. Is there anything here for us today in 2019? And I hope, I hope, I hope that I want to proclaim some good news. You know, the kind of good news that sets people free. The kind of good news that helps people see something that maybe they haven't seen before or hear something they've been deaf to before. Or the kind of good news that takes those who feel bound and brokenhearted and lifts them up and reminds them that love has come and love is coming again. That we are not alone and that it's going to be okay. So I'm excited to be back. Uh, There's two parts to this parable, verses 19 to 22 and then 23 to 31. A lot of people separate them. Some people think this is only Jesus and then this is Luke or uh, in this case. Um, I think it all goes together, and I think Jesus is doing something with all of it, so let's dive in. Does that sound good? Starting in verse 19, there was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Holy buckets. A lot has just been said by Yeshua, my good friend. There was a rich man. Rich people in the ancient world had land, a lot of it, because it's an agrarian culture. It's farming, it's, it's, it's animals and, and crops and livestock. And so to have wealth means you had land, right? So if a rich man shows up in a story, we can assume this person has a, he, uh, he's a real estate mogul, as it were, all right? Uh, he's dressed in purple and fine linen. If you don't know anything about the ancient world, purple is a very difficult dye to get your hands on. Uh, it's the most expensive in the ancient world, and so therefore it is reserved for majesty, for royalty, for kings and queens and people who have serious bank. He's dressed in purple and in fine linen. You don't see a lot of farmers wandering around the fields in fine linen, you know what I'm saying? So what can we assume about this guy? He doesn't have to. He's sitting high and toity up in his palace somewhere in his land, in his, behind a gate, and he's eating, not just every day, but he's eating in luxury, Right? This is the, you know, the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. I can't remember that guy's name, but I think he had an English accent. This is who we're talking about. Jesus, in the opening sentence, paints a picture of a person that everybody would have known. Right? It's important to remember that parables are spoken by a person into a context, into a world. And so when Jesus opens with a rich man who is dressed in fine linen and purple and ate in luxury every day, people are wondering... Who is that guy? I wonder what his name might be or who he's like. They know that person. They're in their culture. These are not random abstract characters, but they're, they're, they're real people. 
So when Jesus tells this story, he opens with a rich man dressed in fine linen and purple, eating in luxury. They also would have known what this person's responsibility to his neighbor would have been. Oh, shaker. In Torah, in the prophets, there are very serious and very specific instructions as to the, the responsibility of those with resource to those who do not have resource. Often it says to the Israelites, do not uh, harvest your fields all the way to the edges, but leave a corner for the alien, the orphan, the widow, the down, the destitute, the oppressed, right? It says, uh, when you gather, don't gather it all in, but leave some for the alien, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, the destitute. Uh, uh, the prophets rail against Israel time and time again, saying that this is what you're supposed to be living like, this is how you're supposed to love and, and care for your neighbor and interact with those who are near you, and yet you find yourselves doing the opposite. One example is Amos chapter 5. I will read it now. Therefore, because you, Israel, you impose heavy rent on the poor, you exact a tribute of grain from them, so you're oppressing those already oppressed. Though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live in them. Sounds like a parent talking to their teenager. Though you have that phone, it is not yours. Though you have planted pleasant vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions and your many and are many. Uh, your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor, where? Say it louder, friends. At the gate. So fascinating. Stay tuned. Gosh. An interesting question to ask about these rich landowners is how they got their land. Like, are these just savvy business people who have amassed great wealth by gathering land somehow? Because in the ancient world, it was passed on from generation to generation, family to family, right? So if someone were to amass more land, how could they have gotten it? Many scholars would argue that these people in these stories were not like, you know, kind, nice, generous folks, but rather these were predatory lenders. These were people who preyed on small farmers who got themselves into a difficult spot, who needed to get out, who offered them a loan that they could never repay, and then when they didn't, took their land. That's a fascinating critique, a fascinating read of Jesus' parables when it says, ah, rich man went away. This may not be the God figure, people, <laughs> right? We may be dealing with a totally different character. Now, how this person got his wealth, we don't know. But I'll just throw that out there for, for your consideration, that it's possible that Jesus is critiquing something here. He's critiquing systems. He's critiquing the way in which people are treating one another. And we have proof of that in the prophets. Amos being one. Micah has some real interesting words for people uh, of Israel. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, on and on and on, right? You're supposed to be acting in this way, and yet you're acting in this way. You distress the righteous, accept bribes, and turn aside the poor at the gate, Verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Come on. Fascinatingly, Lazarus has a name. Usually in parables, people don't have names. But the poor, the lowly, the beggar is given a name. Beyond that, his name is Eleazar, made up of two Hebrew words, El being God and Azar or Ezer, Ezer Konegdo, that's what Eve is to Adam. She's the helper equal unto. So his name means God helps or saves. <laughs> it's just getting good, right? It's like the plot is thickening. You can hear the music like foreshadowing where this is going. Now, people in the ancient world would argue that when a rich person would hold a feast, they would not use napkins. Just treachery. Rather, they would use bread 
to wipe their hands of the food that they were eating and then discard the crumbs under the table, which would be gathered up later and brought where? To the poor, the beggars outside of the city at the gates. Lazarus is lying there covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So literally, he's waiting for the crumbs of the table of the rich and the elite landowner. Top 5% has all the power, all the privilege, all the wealth. This is who we're talking about. In two sentences, Jesus sets up a scenario in which you literally could not find two people who are further from one another, socially, religiously, economically. Couldn't do it. Not only is Lazarus a beggar, but he's covered in sores. And according to Numbers chapter 5 and the Israelite law of cleanliness and uncleanliness, it's likely that this poor beggar, Lazarus, has been put outside of the city gates, outside of the community, because he's ceremonially unclean. So not only is he economically disadvantaged, not only his body is disabled, but he is religiously on the outside. He is the lowest of the low of the low. Are we tracking on this? And this guy, the other, is the richest of the rich of the rich, right? So you literally, it's as far up and right and far down and left as you could go. That's who the two characters are. Um, don't miss what Jesus does. He puts them right next to each other. They're in proximity to one another. Have you seen many beggars outside the Interlock and Country Club gates lately? The answer to that question is no, you have not. Why? Because it's terribly awkward. We go to great lengths to keep the world of the rich and the world of the poor separate from one another, do we not? I would argue the same is true in Jesus' day. Great lengths to make sure, to ensure that the world of the poor and the world of the rich stayed at a, uh, an appropriate and comfortable distance from one another. And yet Jesus puts them right next to each other. What is he up to? Where am I? It's been a while, forgive me. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In one verse, we're now given details about Lazarus, but none about the rich man. Again, you can feel the tables turning. They're starting to shift. Lazarus, God helps, God saves, is carried to Abraham's bosom. Such a great phrase. Who knows what it means? Nobody. He is carried by angelic beings of some sort, we don't know, to like Abraham's nestle, you know, Abraham's comfort spot. Who's Abraham? He's the icon. He's the pinnacle. He's the poster child for Israel. He's like hospitality and wealth and blessing of God in a person. It's Abraham. So Lazarus, the lowest of the low, the destitute, the oppressed, the down and out, the nobody, who actually has a name, ironically enough, is carried to the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man, who we don't know anything about, is dead and buried. You can literally just feel the whole thing starting to shift, and it's about to. Um, a few cultural assumptions that I'll just interject at this point. That would have been at play, I would argue, and I think I'm on good grounds by doing so. John chapter 9, we're introduced to a character who's born blind. In that parable, in that story, the disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? What's the assumption? If you're deformed, you're cursed. If you're deformed, someone has sinned. If you have any malady, if you're deaf, blind, like have disabled body parts, you have been cursed by God, you are less than, and God is not on your side. If you are blessed, wealthy, healthy, God is on your side. These are the assumptions that are at play, which is why when they find a blind man from birth, the disciples ask that question immediately. 
I would submit those same assumptions are present in this story. The rich man is blessed by God and Lazarus is not. We can assume that that is true in the minds of the hearers and those who would have heard it first. Uh, how, how How do you get to that place? How do you get to the place where the assumptions are that the, the rich and the wealthy are blessed by God, but the, the, the disabled and the deaf and the blind are not blessed by God? I would argue that you have a group of religious leaders who are interpreting Torah in such a way to come up with a theology that supports this idea that God blesses those who are healthy and wealthy and God does not bless those who are not. It's so fascinating to me Because in the end of the story, we have Abraham using the law and the prophets to say, you had everything you needed to know what to do and you still didn't do it. Why? How? Because somehow a group of religious leaders were offering you a different interpretation of that book, of that law, that led you to the place where your charity was almsgiving to the poor, which further separated the classes and the rich from the poor, and sort of, it was an obligatory move that you gave and you you felt good about yourself. How do you read the same book and come to such different conclusions? Do you ever wonder that? Two different churches reading the same Bible and the stuff that comes out of there and, and here, you know, it's like you couldn't get further from each other. I don't, I don't have anything else to say about that other than I just think that is so interesting. Part two begins in verse 23. In hell, or in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. Now, this is where a lot of people insert the traditional interpretation of the parable, that this is somehow about heaven and hell. That what Jesus is offering is ontological, like existential, uh, theological propositions about the nature of heaven and hell and who goes there and how you get there and what they are like. Because for many of us, myself included, I grew up in churches where heaven and hell was the entire point of the story, right? And so when we read a parable by Jesus where he starts to mention the idea of Hades or translated hell or something about the afterlife, we're like, immediately, that's got to be what he's up to. I think he might be up to something else. there's so much in this parable that, would, that should lead us to believe that that's not what he's doing. For, the, for, for one fact, they can talk to each other. <laughs> right? Lazarus and the rich man, they're just having a chat. Are heaven and hell so close that they can just chat? Right? Like if, it's lit, if we're to read it literally and this is about heaven and hell, have you ever wondered that? Also, there seems to be like a, a lack of definition and finality in this conversation. Like there seems to be the possibility that one could move from one place to another. But that's not how we talk about heaven and hell, right? It's like you better make your choice now, turn or burn. And it, like if you hit, get hit on the way home, do you know where you're going? You know what I'm saying? Like if it's about that, there are so many things leading us to believe that that is not what Jesus is doing here. I just submit that to you for your consideration. Um, translation doesn't help us either. Lost in translation, that's the series. It was a movie. It's actually a great term. Why? Because when there are two words in Greek that get translated hell, Hades and Gehenna. In our passage, it's Hades, which is uh, the equivalent of the Hebrew word Sheol. I'm going to come back to that. Gehenna is a reference to like the Valley of Hinnom, which is on the southwest side of Jerusalem where they would dump all the trash. So like, be, don't, don't do that or you might be in danger of the fires of Gehenna. Hell. Neither one of those are talking about literal places that people are b- tormented and, and live forever. 
Hades, ours in our text, is, is the equivalent to the Hebrew word Sheol. I'm just going to like drive this one home and then I'll move on. This cannot be about heaven and hell. That cannot be Jesus' main point. And here's why. Do you guys know what anachronism is? It's got the word chronos in it, so it has something to do with time. Anna means against or, or not. Here's what an anachronism is. An error in chronology, especially a chronological misplacing of persons, events, objects, or customs in regard to each other. So if we are to read this parable and we take our cosmological understandings and our ideas about heaven and hell, which are largely informed by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins about Revelation and Dante's Inferno, and we read them back into the text that is anachronistic, right? It is a category error. It's a, it doesn't make sense. That's not what Jesus is up to. Here's what one author says. In the first century, thinking about... And, we have to understand, like, what's the belief about the afterlife in the first century? If we have any chance of understanding what Jesus is doing when he's talking about it, right? We can't take our assumptions and bring them back. Does that make sense? Here's what one author says. The first century, thinking about life beyond death was in a great state of flux and uncertainty. There were all kinds of beliefs about the afterlife. It would be anachronistic to take our, imbue the parable with the cosmology of later Christian thought, 2019, Hades is the equivalent of Sheol. What is Sheol in Hebrew thought? It is the shadowy abode of the dead to which all people without distinction must come. Everybody ends up there. You know, it sounds more like purgatory than it does our conceptions of heaven and hell. It's like a waiting place where righteous and sinners alike are gathered after death but separated from each other, which is why there seems to be this, like, can I move from one place to the next in this text? Here's my point in all this, and then you, you might be thinking, that's great, Micah, beat up an idea, but do you have anything positive to offer? Yes, I do. I don't think this is about heaven and hell. I don't think this is primarily Jesus telling us about the ontological or theological realities of the afterlife in heaven or in hell. Not what he's doing. Here's what I think he is doing. My interpretation, a few of my thoughts, free for you today with donuts and coffee. Not a bad deal. The first of which is this, the dangers of wealth and power and how they can blind us to what is right in front of us. Rich man and Lazarus, two people couldn't be further from each other. Jesus puts them right next to each other and the rich man cannot see it. He doesn't even see it coming. He got robbed by a little old lady on a motorized bike and he never saw it coming, right? He's blind to the judgment that befalls him. He never sees it. How is that possible as a Jew who knows Torah, who reads the prophets? How do you not know that you are responsible for your neighbor? Power, wealth, privilege often blind, make us blind and deaf to things that are right next to us. Are there any ways in which American Church of 2019 that that message might have something to say to us. This is a trope that we have heard over and over and over again. Why? Because it's true. Jesus talks about this incessantly. He says, when a rich man comes to him, 
says, how do I enter the kingdom? He says, you know what? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The windows in the back, that's what they're about. Why? Because he knows something about wealth and power and privilege and what it does to you when you get drunk on it. Here we have a parable about a rich man who's blind to the needs of the man right in front of his home. If he leaves, he sees him. How are you blind to that? My question is, do we believe Jesus when he says these things? That power and privilege and money and being at the top has an inherent danger. Folks, if you have resource, I am not critiquing you or your resource. If you've been blessed with resources and and financial abilities, I'm not critiquing you. Please don't hear me wrong. What I am saying is that Jesus seems to be clear again and again and again to the dangers that befall often those who have power, privilege, and resource. So I just wonder to us in 2019, as a predominantly white church in America, like if there's anything here for us, and I would say if we say no, we are blind, deaf, and dumb. Don't do it. Don't fall for it. It's as old as the day is long. Secondly, I would say the distinctions and the divisions we make fade in the end, but the decisions we make in light of them do not. Here's what I mean. There are a million ways that we divide ourselves, where we place one group on one side and another group on the other side, the opposites of one another, clearly enemies of each other, A, B, left, right, blue, red, black, white, right? The whole, all kinds of ways, straight, gay. Like, there are all kinds of ways that we separate each other, we divide ourselves up into different camps, and we differentiate from one another. And then, by looking at the distance and the gap that exists between me, the righteous, and you, the unrighteous, I gain value from that. That's called judging. Jesus says it's not a very good idea. But we do it anyways. We think that he might not be telling us the truth on that one. So we do that, and we divide ourselves, and I think at least what Jesus is saying is, in the end, you couldn't find two people who are further from each other in just in one moment. All the things that matter don't matter anymore. The rich man, who, who's supposed to be blessed by God and have all of that, right? He's at the bottom, and the, rich, or the, the beggar who was at the bottom, who didn't have a single thing, is sitting in Abraham's bosom. How you like, how you like it now? The ways in which we differentiate and divide ourselves up does not last. All that matters when it's, when it's said and done is that you bear the image of the divine, I bear the image of the, the divine, I am broken and fumbling around in the dark, as are you, we are all beggars in need of crumbs, amen? We're all in need of grace, that's all that matters. However, the decisions we make based on the distinctions we make do matter. Do not be naive to the ways in which we divide ourselves up and then make decisions based on our apparent difference. That matters. Jesus says, woe unto you, pay attention, don't do that. Which leads me to my third point and final. And I think it's a sharp warning of Jesus about the importance of the choices we're making today and how they play out in eternity. I don't think this is... uh, specifically about heaven and hell and like how it works out and like cosmologically where it is up and down and fire and Abraham's 
chest or whatever. But I do, I don't want to diminish the very real and present warning that I think Jesus offers, which is that the choices that we make here and now play out. They matter in this life and the next. One author says, we're practicing to become the people we will be forever. C.S. Lewis has a great you know, musing on this in The Great Divorce. The choices we make now, they do matter. Do they, do they automatically render our eternity? No, right? Like, grace is a part of this, and, and it seems that, you know, we can, we can at least say, like, I was wrong, I want to go that way instead of that way. Like, but, but the choices that we make matter. Don't think that they don't. I begin with the assumption that this life is not all that there is. And you may not agree with me on that, that's fine, but that's where I start. But like, beyond death, physical death, there is something more, eternal. And we have, we have agency, choice. You're a human with freedom, and you can choose to participate in the ongoing work of creation that God is up to right here and right now. That's about beauty and shalom and repair and restoration and forgiveness and mercy and hope and joy. You can participate in that, or you, you can choose not to. And the choices you make related to that and how you treat others in the world matter now and forever. So what kind of person are you becoming? What kind of person are you practicing to be? If that's true, and I'm right, what kind of person will you be in eternity? Does everything just get... I, I, I'm just wondering here right now. Please don't like, try to create doctrines or dogmas or what is Mike saying. I'm just wondering. Like, based on what Jesus is saying, he seems to offer some words that would lead us to the place of thinking about this. Like, I think it matters now and then. So like, what, what choices are we making now? And how will they affect us then? I'll close with this. It's ironic in the parable that in the end you have Abraham the father of Israel, for whom the law and the prophets are the book. And it's him who says to the rich man, when he says, like, what kind of, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be? Like, Abraham says, you had everything you needed. Like, it was there for you. You, 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 you had it. And he uses the law and the prophets to say, um, and I find it fascinating also that the rich man like, he, he, did you notice who he asks to, to do his bidding? Lazarus, the beggar. Like, old habits die hard. We entitled powerful people, even in death, it appears, bid the servants and the lowly to do our work. That's a fascinating thought. But it's ironic that it's this person that Abraham turns to and says, you have all, all the tools that you need. You know how to walk in this world as a human, and yet you pay no attention to it. And, and even if we send someone to your brothers, like, they have it too. It has been revealed. To which I would say to you and I, I think the same response would come to us. If we said, oh Lord, we didn't know. I think God would say, the word has been given to you, written and enfleshed. What more do you need? How did you not know? So a few questions. What does it mean for us 
What does it mean for us to let Jesus challenge our assumptions about the way God works? And we have thoughts about, well, this is how God works. This is, this is how it goes. This is what happens. This is who, you know. But like, it, it seems that Jesus is challenging the assumptions of those who heard this first. What does it mean for us to let that happen here in this space? What does it mean for us to see our Lazarus kinds of people, culturally, as those who are near to the heart of God? I think this gets to the, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is saying. So who are the Lazaruses in our, in our world, in our day? And what does it mean for us to believe and see that they are near to the heart of the divine? It's not them that's far away. Over and over and over we read that in Scripture. I don't think that's untrue. Some of the great mystics and, and people who have written and lived in our day have said the same thing. They said the closer in proximity that I got to suffering and pain and people who, are in, who have been oppressed or on the underside, the closer I got to the heart of God. That's what people say. Do we believe that's true? That's a word for me, i got to be honest. If I, if I were to just let you into my process this week, that one's embarrassing at times. But it's for me. So here's my prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a broken sinner who has crafted you in my own image. Reveal yourself to me. Shock me with your love, overturn me with your grace, upend me with your mercy. Disassemble my doctrines and give me your heart. Give me your eyes to help me see. Pray with me. God, as we take a moment to be silent and listen to the, the spirit that's at work among us and in us and around us, help us to hear. Help us to hear clearly who you are Help us to find you. I don't think you're hiding. I just don't know that we have eyes to see you sometimes. So give us eyes. Wake us up. Um, help us to remove the lenses that we've been given or that we believe are true that are actually leading us away from where you are and who you are near and what you're up to in the world. Whatever we're responsible for, God, make sure... We don't leave today not knowing that. Holy Spirit, don't let us fall for the same tricks. That up and to the right brings joy in life. Holy Spirit, speak, I pray. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.